0: The approach. Four, three, two, one. No, zero. Listeners, and welcome back aboard Costume Station Zero. I'm Bob Mitch, and we're here with part two of my chat with Wally Wingert. We're going to be talking about Beetlejuice and Andy Kaufman, Adam West, and costume collecting. So stick around, and here we go. Um, I actually want to touch on the fact that, you know, it's uh, you're one of the few people I know that's really done a a lot of charity work and and almost paid appearances in costume. Most of my friends, you know, we just do this because we're fans or we want to, you know, fly the colors and get out there in a convention. Sure, yeah, yeah. And uh, what I also think is great is, you know, not only were you doing Elvis and, uh, you know, Batman, but you eventually uh, worked as Beetlejuice, correct? I did, yeah. Uh, At Universal Studios from 94 to 98,
1: uh, they supplied all the costuming and everything. Uh, My concerns in that job was not so much with the costume because the costume was, was pretty good but was more with the makeup it didn't resemble what I saw in the movie mm-hmm. they had their way of doing it but I would try to adjust that for to try and look more like what I saw in the feature film mm-hmm. um, for example he has long fingernails in the feature film and which looks kind of cool and creepy mm-hmm. Well, they weren't so into that because there was a lot of pyro, a lot of stuff going on. They so said, we can't have fake fingernails. They could start on fire. And they had a whole list of excuses why. And I was like, but but, darn it, I want it to look like, you know. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the other guys would just come in and s- slop the makeup on their face and go out there and do the shows. They really care. But I would spend at least an hour on the makeup. The... Some of the Beetlejuices would leave their jackets open. It was the the main costume that we wore was the black and white striped costume, right? With kind of the baggy pants tucked into the army boots, and the suit jacket with the tie and the black or the black tie and the white shirt. And I was I, was, I got a bunch of stills to research the character when I first started. Went down here to Hollywood and bought five or six Beetlejuice stills and noticed that. It's still early days of
0: the internet now.
1: It it is. The internet hadn't really even uh, taken off yet. I was still buying, you know, just reference photos from the local photo guy, which is now out of business because of (laughs) the internet. Internet. Yeah. So I would study these and go, he has a gold ring on his index finger with a red stone. Well, I got to have one too. (laughs) So I went down to a pawn shop, found somebody's old high school ring that fit on my index finger, and I bought it. Um, Then I noticed that he had about... Four or five watches mm-hmm. on one hand, and they were all grimy, and they were all, like, strange-looking. So I went out and found every plastic toy watch I could, mm-hmm. sprayed him with a bunch of different paints, and said, Okay, well, now these are my... So when I went out there, did anybody in the audience really know, Oh, he's got four watches, just like the Beatles in the moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody. But I knew it. Sure. And I felt more in character if I went out completely armed with the ring... You know the watches and the the whole bit. I'd right. even grown my fingernails out long <laughs> at at some point, just because if they're not going to let me put on fake fingernails, I'm going to grow my own. So I stopped biting my fingernails, trimming my fingernails, and I grew them out. I look like a guitar or a harp player, right? You know the guys with the really fingernails. And people would go, "Oh, uh, you have long fingernails. Do you play guitar?" I said, "No, I play Beetlejuice." <laughs> <laughs> they're like, "What?" So it was it was just a dedication, you know, but. With all of the physicality of that show, mm-hmm. uh, fingernails were breaking, and you know you, you'd want you'd have three of of five left, and it finally just like you know it's not even worth it, so it's. Uh, you know, the detail of the character that sometimes it just goes beyond the realm of reality you just have to
0: go, all right, well, that I can let slide, I guess. Right. I, I still think it's fascinating you say how, um, I know the costumes were provided, but that even the studio had trouble matching that fabric. Yeah, the, the black and white fabric, they had a really hard time finding and they ended up
1: finding it from a a manufacturer that made fabric for awnings. <laughs> So they said, uh, somebody was just driving by an, uh, a store one day on a street and said, stopped the car and got it. Where'd you get that awning? Oh, I got it from this company. Went to the company and said, where do you get this fabric to make the awnings? Oh, I get it from this supplier. So they would buy it in by the bolt sure. of this black and white, but it was stark black and stark white. So um, it would look too contrasty on stage for the, mm-hmm. the show that we were doing. So they would always uh, buy it and then uh, over diet with, with tea or something to take the white out a lot, to take the white down quite a bit. And after a couple of launderings of that material anyway, it started to look kind of dingy, which worked for the character, which was kind of cool looking. But, uh, yeah, they, because I was looking for it everywhere. And I found black and white striped material that was stretchy. Uh-huh. So I, th- I think I made some, like, lounging pants out of them or something. Uh, just, you know, your, like, pajama pants. Sure. And... Uh, that was, that was pretty neat. But other than that, as far as an actual suit that you could make out of that, one kid came dressed as Beetlejuice. I think his name was TJ. And he would always come to the park dressed as Beetlejuice. Cute little kid. He was probably only about five or six, but he loved the show. And he had a white jacket that he had found, but he just took electrical tape again. <laughs> and took electrical tape and, and put the stripes on with the black tape. And I thought, that's, that's pretty clever. Funny costume story about... Adam West when I first met him the very first night he was supposed to do Friday, Saturday, Sunday mm-hmm. the weekend World of Wheels he flew in from Idaho it was very cold and very snowy that weekend uh, the airline had lost his luggage so he didn't oh. have his luggage for the first night's of a, worth of appearances so there he was Friday night with his cowl on because he always carries the cowl with him so mm-hmm. it doesn't get crushed or lost but the cape the boots everything else was in his luggage they had lost mm-hmm. So he was there with just the cowl on and his flannel shirt and his sheepskin jacket and his jeans and his cowboy boots, and I thought that was that was very odd. But it's such a great memory uh-huh. that I don't even really think it could have happened any other way because it was so odd and strange. Mm-hmm. And I first, uh, you know, when I met him, I said, "Well, Mister West, uh, um, I used to dress up as Batman when I was a kid, and I'd use my dad's army cap and uh, and." uh Uh, a a, a towel safety pin around my neck. He says, I'll be using that tonight. (laughs) So it was, uh, it is one of those things where, well, I'll, I'll go to my house now and get my towel and my safety pin. I'll be right back. But then I saw him the next day and he had the full costume on, but the costume that he was wearing wasn't one of the costumes from the show. Right. A lot of that stuff had gone bye-bye. Sure. In the amount of time from 1968 to 1980. So the cowl that he was wearing, the shell was original, but it had been recovered for the challenge of the superheroes. Oh, right. And recovered uh, badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not very well. So the neck wasn't long enough, so the neck kept popping out from underneath the cape. Mm -hmm. And it kind of had this fluffy, blousey quality. It was very strange. Um, The tights that he was wearing... weren't original. The bat emblem that he had was big, was oversized, and was cut wrong. Mm -hmm. It was like jagged. Right, right. It wasn't a perfect oval. Mm. Uh, It was very, it was weird. The gloves he had weren't tight fitting to the to the forearm. They were kind of blousey, and the scallops on the gloves were floppy. They weren't. There was nothing in there, uh, like the cardboard or or buckram or whatever. Uh, The belt was original. But it, would, it had seen better days. Mm-hmm. Um, the trunks were actually black, not blue. And the boots were were original. Sure. So while it was really cool to see him in that suit, because it was one of the last times you'd ever get to see Adam sure. in, the, in the suit, because sure. by 87, he was told, you know, 88, he was told not to do that anymore when, when, when the, movie the new out. movie came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It still was like, hmm, little disappointing. But I said, someday... I'm going to dress him as Batman the way he deserves. Mm-hmm. So in about 1995, Ray Ferry and Famous Monsters Magazine at the time had done this 30 years of Adam West to celebrate thir- 66 to 96. And they did this whole magazine about Adam West's remembrances of, of being Batman. It was a great magazine. But sure. the, but the, the inside cover and the back cover... If you took the magazine off from the cover and open it up, it was a two-page spread of Adam wearing the costume that we had made for him in 1995, and it looked awesome. Uh, of course, he had to cross his arms over the bat signal because on his chest, because that was the trademark thing. Uh-huh. But that's my the suit that I made him mm-hmm. for that you know when we made him those suits to go out on the road with. Right. Um, to just to put on a mannequin, mm-hmm. he actually had had put it on, and that's the first time apparently that he had had a bad costume on, in probably about fifteen years or so. Oh wow! And he said uh, it was a little
0: it was a little weird, but um, yeah, didn't you pretty fabulous? Uh, didn't you also uh, help costume the uh, Back to the bat Cave special in two thousand three? I did. Yeah, uh,
1: once people figured out that I was kind of the go to guy, uh, since Jan Kemp had uh, subsequently moved to. Uh, L- back to London, and then had died mm-hmm. in, in about the, in the late nineties. That I was now the go-to guy with with all the secrets. So I was contacted to provide costumes for this, which I thought was a great opportunity. And it ended up it ended up not being a great opportunity, and in retrospect, I wish I had passed on the whole thing. Oh. Yeah, it was it was all bad news almost from from the very start. And like I said, in retrospect, I wish I had not done it. We were we were too limited. Mm-hmm. Um, they said they wanted the costumes. I was like, well, well that I can do. That's easy. Mm-hmm. And then they said, oh, by the way, we don't have the rights. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to have to be changed just enough that our attorneys are comfortable with the fact that they, we can't be sued. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm saying, well, what do you mean changed? Well, we want to have the colors a little different. Ooh. Um, so we went a little lighter on the gray, the scallops on the glove. We decided to go with four instead of three. Mm-hmm. Um, the belt was changed just a little bit um, the scallops on the cape weren't the right number it was a little different so we had to change the patterns it
0: was all goofy and that must have hurt after all those years of striving for screen accuracy then to be told you have to be deliberately non-accurate yeah, it, it did yeah
1: because then people would come after me going wow those costumes they really suck they did not look even like the real <laughs> yeah. ones I'm like, but we couldn't look like the real ones I, I'm trying to tell you mm-hmm. So the R on Robin's thing had to be a little different it had to be kind of curvy and bubbly it couldn't be exactly the and it was all it was all a zoo it was it was very poorly thought out and kind of mis misguided. Yeah. But you know it was it, it is what it what it is and it was what it was. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I at the time I was working a lot so yeah. I really had no financial interest in providing these costumes I just wanted to do it as an opportunity Adam had suggested to them I do it. Uh, all the other people that I knew in the, involved in the original cast, suggested I do it. So I thought, well, I want this to look good for, for Adam's sake, and this mm-hmm. could be the last thing he does. And I think it ended up being one of the last things Frank Gorshin did. So I said, well, I tell you what, I'll you know I'll provide these costumes, but but I don't want any any pay, but I want to keep you know the the cowl's. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to get on the set. And be involved, and I'm going to need to be on the set anyway, because if something goes wrong with the costume, I need to be there to fix it or repair it or whatever. Right. And I want to be able to, you know, mention it on my website that I'm involved in it. So they said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great. So they signed this agreement with all this stuff and then promptly turned around and didn't honor any of it. (laughs) I was never on the set. I was, you know, once I put something on the website, they've hit the roof and they said, what are you putting the stuff on your website? And I'm like, well, that was part of of the the deal. deal. Yeah. So, it was just all, like I said, misguided mm-hmm. and ill-conceived. And once I saw it all finished, I was like, oh, Boy, <laughs> I really am kind of sad that this is going to be the last to wrap for these guys. That this is going to be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was cool. Jason Marsden, who played uh, Burt Ward in that, is one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. So, it's kind of cool to talk about it with him, because I didn't really know him that well at the time. But... Yeah, it was, it was fun initially. Right. And then I'm getting all these excuses why I'm not getting some of these materials back, why I'm not getting on the set, why all of, you know you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. So, you know, in retrospect, I thought, well, I think this is going to be my last uh, costume thing because this is not really my deal, and I'm not that interested in really doing this that much anymore because a lot of the materials that, you know, we needed to find didn't exist anymore so much it was it was getting as the years went on it was getting harder and harder and harder to find a lot of this stuff sure um, from 68 to 88 and 89 that's only 20 years some of the materials are still there but by ni- by 2003 when that movie came on the air none of this stuff existed the jumbo spandex was pretty much all but gone mm-hmm. jumbo spandex strangely enough was a girdle making material back in the 50s 60s girdles were big Uh what did you want the girdles to be stretchy satiny looking Mm -hmm. you know pretty stuff sure sure nobody wears girdles anymore uh maybe we should but (laughs) nobody's wearing them anymore so they figure well we don't really need to make this material anymore because who needs it Mm -hmm. girdles aren't the thing anymore so a lot of the stuff was getting really really hard to find And then 2009 rolled around, and I just started working on the Jay Leno show as the voice of the Jay Leno show. I thought, well, this is a pretty good opportunity. It's a great company, great group of people. And I got an email about providing costumes for a Batman parody that they were working on. And they said, we saw your stuff online. You're the guy. We love all your stuff. Um, Please email us back to talk about maybe doing this. And I'm like, well, I'm not really down with that so much anymore but let me talk to him and find out what's going on you've been already soured once uh-huh. already soured once and pretty much had, had decided to retire uh from that from at least from the costuming thing because i was so busy in voiceover and i didn't really sure sort of time to do it anyway sure but i just started with jay leno and i said well tell me more about this well it's a parody of the batman 66 thing uh, it's a porno, and uh, we're going <laughs> like, excuse me. Uh, yeah, it's an adult uh, film that uh, we're like. So it's it's like like explain this to me. Yeah, right. Well, there's a whole series of these adult films now that parody famous TV shows, and you know that they're spending a lot of money on it. There's you know for for them to spend a million dollars on a porno is is pretty amazing. And uh, this is good. everything's going to be really great. The sets. I'm like, yeah. Well, um, let me think about it. So then I just sent them an email saying, oh, I'm so busy right now, but good luck with everything, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's great. Because I thought all I would need to do is be on that set one day and have somebody snap a picture. Yeah. And it gets on the Internet, and, and the Jay Leno people are like, hey, wait a minute, is this you with this... Please explain this. Yeah, yeah, Or Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield, to go, why is the guy who voices my John Arbuckle character on this porno set? Yeah, And all this other stuff. So I said, it's probably not a good... Agreed. And my friend Fred, who's an agent, said, you can't go anywhere near that place. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, you're probably right. So as much fun as it would have been to be able to go dress Batgirl, mm-hmm. um, I'm glad I probably... Uh, probably took a pass at it because it just probably wouldn't have been the thing. But, you know, so I think my costuming days are, are pretty much over anyway, but um, every once in a while I'll get a chance to do some little thing, if it's a mannequin here, or some sort of presentation I'm doing here, like the Elvis costume from my robot Elvis, that was fun to work on. Sure, It wasn't a costume for me, but I was dressing that, and I knew exactly what had to be done, what had to be taken up where, and how to do this, how to do the belt. The, the belt that I was given from my robot Elvis wasn't in that good a shape mm-hmm. but i could use the rest of the belt i just had to replace the buckle right so i remembered with all my experience back to when i was you know 17 18 19 making these elva suits well how would i have done that back then oh i know how to so i got the vinyl i mean this time i took some brass and cut it and curved it and did the whole thing and you know now i know how velcro works how barge glue works so all this stuff right, works right. i'm like okay well now i know how to do this and you, you paint it you put the studs on you do the different things then you glue it and then you leave it for a little while and yeah, so it's it's all a process. But you know, you take that information and knowledge that you've, you know, saved up over all the years and said, oh, this this is easy squeezy. Sure, sure. So every once in a while there'll be some sort of project or something coming up. Like I have Andy Kaufman's original Elvis costume and I'm looking at this it's made out of wool gabardine like the original Elvis suits were. Uh uh-huh. and I'm thinking um, you know there's some moth holes in here. Right. Well, I don't, I don't really want to see the moth holes because it's going to want a mannequin. You'll see those poking through. So my seamstress, Kathy Pillsbury, said, Oh, I have, a, I have a way to do that. She does a lot of restoration for Star Trek costumes and a lot of the original things that come her way. Right. So she said, What I can do is I can go into the seam allowances inside and punch out little holes of the fabric, and I can plug those into the moth holes mm-hmm. and reinforce them on the back so you'll never see it wow it's i was like well if anybody can do it you can do it because uh-huh. she's amazing yeah and she brings it over and she had to have plugged about 15 moth holes on that thing but it looks amazing now um and once it goes on the mannequin you're not going to be able to tell anyway so it's
0: pretty great yeah i was actually going to ask you about uh andy kaufman <laughs> i know you've got a, a good collection of, of his um uh, clothing and costumes and you've done tony clifton yes and that must have also involved beyond the costume uh heavy makeup uh, a lot of heavy makeup
1: uh, a prosthetic that was made for me for the e true hollywood story when i portrayed andy and tony clifton in the e true hollywood story recreation segments mm-hmm. so once i had the mold kind of made up for the prosthetic I became friends with a makeup guy, Robert Hall, and he would just run me an appliance whenever I needed to go out or do something or a convention or whatever. But finding a lot of... Remember, Andy was doing this character in nineteen 8, or 9. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff... And I'm doing it in, what, 2000? Mm-hmm. So 1999, actually, when Man on the Moon came out. So from 79 to 99, 20 years had passed. So a lot of the stuff isn't really going to exist anymore. So, finding the ruffled shirt that he used was pretty easy. I found one. I had it dyed. But finding the tuxedo was proving to be very difficult, because what he did was he wore a an off-the-rack tuxedo uh, by Lord West mm-hmm. called the... Prince Edward style. Lord West was the company, but this particular style of tux was the uh, Prince Edward, which was the boxy tails that there's no curvature on it at all. It's very straight. It's almost kind of l- a little longer than what your average tuxedo jacket would be. Right. But it's very boxy looking. But the fabric that it's made out of is this woven tapestry gross orange <laughs> sherbet looking polyester. Uh, polyester, very very hip in the seventies, yeah. but in two thousand and one, eh, not so much. But it's brilliant in the fact that it's so obnoxious and it's so loud that it just speaks to that character's uh, vivaciousness. So, <laughs> finding these t- these types of tuxes were, was very difficult because I think as time passed. The tux houses had these and said, these are so ugly and hideous. We are never going to be able to rent these out. Get rid of all of them. So they would pitch them. And then a lot of them probably went, you know, into the dump. Mm -hmm. And then years later, retro happens. And it's like, oh, it's so retro. But where do you find one? It took me 12 years to find an orange paisley Lord West Prince Edward tux. I'd found the pattern of the fabric in blue, brown, black, Uh, But I'd I'd never found an orange one. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I took another Lord West Prince Edward tux that I'd found at a retro tux shop in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard, the tuxedo store or shop, something like that. And then I found out years later after reading Andy's biography that that's where he got that original one, was the same tuxedo store in Hollywood on Sunset. Right. Um, But at the time that he got it, it was brand new. It was an eggshell tuxedo that had kind of a, a, a two-level pattern. The jacket itself was kind of made of kind of a dull satiny material, mm-hmm. but it had these brocade appliques on it that were woven in to give it this kind of two-tone, kind of even as an eggshell-colored tuxedo, a kind of a two-tone vibe. Right. Where the, the, the brocade appliques were dull, but the fabric it was on was shiny, so it would be the kind of matte shiny matte shiny matte shiny effect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm like, you know, I'd have to dye this, but the collar's right, the piping on the lapel is right, the buttons are all right, but I would have to dye it um kind of a peachy salmon-y orange. But I don't know if I should or not. So I'm sitting at this, yeah, I think it was maybe not even a hundred bucks, it it's like eighty-five dollars. Right. But at the time i'm like well it is 85 dollars. by the time i died it's gonna be another probably 50 60 and it's like do i really want to i'm not really that crazy about the tony clifton character anyway but you know maybe with man on the moon coming out i should get it because it might be kind of cool mm-hmm. so as i'm standing there in the upper level of this tuxedo store in hollywood i hear the radio on in the next room and i'm like wait a minute i know that song That sounds really familiar with the tux in hand, I walk into the next room where they have the radio playing KLOS and it's Man on the Moon uh, by REM and I'm uh, like, "Ah, thanks Andy. I get it. I get <laughs> it, Andy. Okay, thank you." <laughs> so I put the tux on, look in the mirror and I'm like, "Hey, hey, don't go say it. Hey, where where you from? Hey, okay, I right, hey, shut up, shut up." You know, <laughs> and I'm kind of getting into the posture, looking around in the mirror like, "Okay, I'm going to take it." So then I had my uh, my friend Sergio it, and it ended up being kind of cool looking. Mm-hmm. And nobody, you know, spotted it as... It's like the people with the four watches in the audience of Beelgeuse. Nobody's going to know mm-hmm. that you're... Uh. So it looked like Clifton's tux. Mm-hmm. It was orange. It had the kind of multi-level thing. I had the shirt. I had the personality. I had the thing. Everybody was buying 100% that it was Tony Clifton. Awesome. So much, in fact, that the real Tony Clifton, a.k.a. Bob Smuda said hey wally uh you know <laughs> you're out there as uh clifton a lot and uh you know i'm trying to revitalize the character and do some stuff with him because man of the moon's out and i'm gonna try and really do a, a show with a lot of production value and you know it's probably kind of confusing if you're out there and i'm out there and you know would you mind like not doing it anymore i'm like i don't mind at all i'm not, to do it anymore i don't care mm-hmm. it's your character you can do with it what you want he's like oh thanks and he said, uh, "Well, you know, I, I feel bad, but you know, just thank you. I'll bring you in and some of the stuff, and and we'll, you know, you'll get to see kind of the behind the scenes of the Kaufman legacy." I'm like, "That's much cooler." Yeah, than growing right. out as Tony Clifton. So I stopped doing Clifton, um, and then got to be involved with him in a, in an Andy Kaufman tribute in 2004, where I got to see the the real Clifton jacket, which mm-hmm. Bob Zamuda still owns, mm-hmm. and try it on. And that's when I really got my first up close look at that crazy. Orange sherbet colored paisley pattern. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it going, Well, I've seen it on TV plenty of times when Andy's doing Clifton, the Fantastic Miss Piggy show, Midnight Special, all these other Dinah Shore show. But here it is in my hand, and I'm now wearing it, you know, looking in the mirror going, How you doing? Must, <laughs> must have been amazing. It was amazing, yeah. So I thought, Hmm, I wonder if Bob would sell this, but it's it's too close to his heart. So, mm-hmm. But I did. After I had that visual picture of what it was, I knew exactly what the fabric now felt like, Mm -hmm. what it smelled like, what it fit like, what Mm -hmm. it breathed like. So, once I found – so, I'd always check eBay. Sure. I checked every vintage store from here to New York. And most of the time, I got – never seen one. 25% of the time I got we just sold one like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, crap, I'm just not it's just not meant to be." And while I wasn't going to do Clifton anymore, I would like to have one just to say I had one. Sure. So, I find this guy on eBay that has one of the orange tuxes, mm-hmm. and he's advertising it as a Tony Clifton tux. So, I'm at a session, a video game session. I know that the auction is ending at like noon, <laughs> noon 20. Right. Yeah. And I'm getting done with the session at 11. And mm-hmm. I'm like, guys, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. been drinking water all morning at the session. I'm driving. It's in Culver City. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the clock. <laughs> so I'm driving up over like Laurel Canyon. Right. I'm looking at the watch. I got to get there for that auction because I want to be able to put in a super high bid. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I had offered people, I said, if you can find a tux like that, I will give you $2,000. <laughs> I mean, I was like willing to give them any amount of money to have one. One well and done. Yeah. So, yep, so I was ready to pay any price so after having drank all that water then i had to go to the bathroom there was of course in laurel canyon there's just a bunch of trees and stuff and there's really no gas stations to go to i'm like ah, i got i can't make it so i had to pull over like to the side of the road and <laughs> wait for somebody not not to come by <coughs> had to get that done get back in my car i got back at about you know noon mm-hmm. oh, thank god so i sat there got on ebay and I actually ended up getting it for about two hundred sixty-five dollars, which I thought, right? Bonus. That's mm-hmm. great. I would have paid that with a zero on it, so um, uh, it was it was great. So I talked to the guy and I said, of course, my m- one of my email addresses is Tony Clifton something at Yahoo mm-hmm. something, and uh, the guy says, oh, is he a big Clifton fan? I'm like, oh yeah, I've been looking for one of these for a long time. I said, where did you ever find this? He said, my uncle was a performer in the old days, a nightclub performer, mm-hmm. who had a lot of different costumes for a lot of different characters and things that he'd do. And he had a couple of these. Mm-hmm. A, 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 excuse me, a couple? Mm-hmm. A couple? Right, he says, oh right. yeah, I've got another one in a size blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. Okay. Uh, I will pay you the exact same amount that I paid you for this one for the second one because I want them both. Oh, okay. <laughs> cool. Dines, I'm man. just trying to sell some of this stuff for my, my uncle is trying to get it out of his house. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So I got not one but two after a 12-year year search. And right about then I had found Andy Kaufman's original head cast mm-hmm. um, underneath a puppet effect head from the Stan Winston Studios that I bought at an auction. So I had Andy's face cast run up in fiberglass with the the heartbeats prosthetics removed and it's just andy's head basically in fiberglass and what i did was take a two uh, part putty called magic sculpt mm-hmm. and i had some clifton pictures there of the original prosthetic which wasn't great by the way sure sure. the original clifton prosthetic was kind of cheesy looking because mm-hmm. it was sculpted by bob and andy together Then, and then later years later they got a professional makeup guy to actually do it but I said, well, I can, I can do this. I mean, it's going to look kind of cheesy anyway, but it's a, that's kind of the thing. Right. And apparently when Andy would do Tony Clifton, he would leave the prosthetic on for days because he wouldn't come out of the character for days. That's uh, the legend. Uh. And he'd leave this on so the edges would be all f- falling off around mm-hmm. his thing. <laughs> but he'd just leave this on. Right. And uh, so people would see Clifton running around a nightclub and they'd, knew, they'd know it was Andy. Mm-hmm. But you can't call him Andy when he's Clifton because he'll, he'll yell at you. You're right. But... You can clearly see its makeup because all the edges are peeling off and everything. So it's pretty funny. So I said, All right, this doesn't really have to look so good. So I took the two part magic sculpt compound, sculpted on Andy's life cast, the Clifton prosthetic, and then gave it to my special effects guy, Jim, to have it mounted on the mannequin uh, with uh, a great paint job. And the paint job that he did on it was so great that I'm sure it looks way better than what the original Clifton looked like. Because I think when Andy put the makeup on it was just one color Mm -hmm. of like flesh tone, (laughs) grease paint. Right. Uh, But this actually has some skin tone to it and some pores and some things. So I'm sure it looks much better than what the real Clifton looked like when Andy was doing (laughs) it. But uh, I have it in my kitchen standing here smoking a pack of Lucky's uh, just looking like he's ready to sing a song. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what my costuming quest has kind of turned into now. It started off with me looking to augment my personal performances with the best costumes possible, and then after I kind of stopped playing dress up, I was looking to acquire costumes that were similar to what I liked, but for mannequins and for a presentation in my house. Sure. And then I got into collecting actual legitimate costumes
0: from films and television shows and so yeah you have some some great pieces uh for for those who don't know and i'll, I'll post a link to uh your website which has photos and, and i'll post a few photos as well but uh wally has uh, an original costume from billy zane's the phantom from yes 1996, yeah. uh, ray fines jacket from strange days uh some pieces from austin powers uh, both the first and the second one and, um, boy, um, oh, Jack Lord's suit from Hawaii 5 Right, yeah. Adani um, Osmond, uh, Osmond suit.
1: Uh, of course, Andy Kaufman's original performance costume with the checkered blazer. Um, his Heartbeeps costume. Yeah. <clears throat> and I just recently acquired his first Elvis costume. So, um, and I have a couple other little pieces here and there, like, um... A Phantom of the Opera bow tie from uh, when Davis Gaines was doing Phantom here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did a lot of work at the radio station I was working at for AIDS Project Los Angeles, and they were, the Phantom crew, were involved in that with us. And as a thank you, they gave me one of Davis's Phantom bow ties, which is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, just the uh, little things there. I have, a Sebastian Box Skid Row chainmail tank top that was made by Michael Schmidt, who's the main chainmail guy in town. If you're Cher, Tina Turner, whomever, mm-hmm. and you need chainmail, this is the guy to go to, apparently. So, uh, yeah, just, uh, I have a Jay Osmond costume that I actually wore in the Each Hollywood Story as Andy performing as Elvis. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be something that we could rent that fit, that looked kind of Elvisy, and it was two-part. And... uh so when it came up for sale, I said, well, I've got to have this, not because it's Jay Osmond's, but because I wore it in the e Drew Hollywood story. Right. I have a couple of pairs of pants from the Scorpion King 2, a um, couple of little things. So. Oh, those great boots from uh, Star Trek
0: Trials and Tribulations. Yeah. That's
1: right, yeah. yeah. And that's what I think, there's no proof that that's where it came from, but I'm sure, I'm sure it is. They don't look vintage 60s, mm-hmm. but they have the DeFabrizio label on the inside. They had the Paramount. Mark on the bottom mm-hmm. They are men's boots That go up to the knee, zip on the side And I'm like, well, Paramount Has men's boots that zip up on the side That go all the way up to the knee Well, what what, what Paramount production Does that sound like to you? <laughs> well, it exactly. sounds like Star Trek uh-huh. It just didn't look like the old Star Trek boots From the 60s, mm-hmm. though So I said, well, it's probably In my educated guess um, Made for the trials and tribulations And D. Fabrizio's out of business so I can't even take him back to him to show him and say, do you confirm. know what these are? Yeah, to confirm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just uh, every once
0: in a while you pick up really uh, great pieces. and I know you, you pick them up both from auction and uh, occasionally from places like It's a Wrap or yeah. uh, Western Costume or whatnot. Well, you found
1: some great It's a Wrap stuff. Uh, oh, the yeah. The Zorro yeah. cape mm-hmm. and some of the other stuff.
0: Yeah, you, Scott, every- Scott uh, actually was there when you found the Phantom type.
1: Right, yeah. yeah. And Scott said, uh, I don't want this one because it's ripped. Oh yeah, and I said, "Well, hold on a second. and I looked at it, and it was an intentional rip. Mm-hmm. It was made intentionally with the edges of the fabric kind of burned, so it wouldn't fully, you know, continue to unravel, mm-hmm. unravel. And I said, "This is uh, this rip's intentional. There's something going on here," and I hadn't seen the Phantom in a really long time. The knife wound, yeah. It's the knife wound, yeah. And the very first time you see the Phantom, he gets stabbed in the side, mm-hmm. and you see a very clear close-up of it as the knife is pulled back out of him mm-hmm. and you see the bloody wound, I'm like, ha, ha, ha that's, that's them right there there you go, so that's that's the great thing about looking for costumes that were actually screen used mm-hmm. is being able to find references to that particular one that you have mm-hmm. um, that you can say, see this, well that's this mm-hmm. um, day. like the Fembot, the Vanessa Fembot that I have where the exploding head Fembot mm-hmm. Uh, It came headless with powder burns on the neck of the rubber. And that's the one they blew in the movie. The one where they blow up the head. it's like, ah, that is that. Mm -hmm. And the the Fembot costume that I have is one of the pink Fembot costumes from the first Austin Powers. But when it showed up, I bought it at at auction on the New Line website. And when it showed up, I was inspecting it, looking it over, and trying to see if there's a, a label. There's a name label that said Cheryl and i noticed that the bra had holes in the tips right and i said why would they put holes in the tips ah it's the one where they ran the smoke tubes through for the smoking jubblies sure sure yeah yeah so sure enough i looked it up online and cheryl bartell was the name of the gal who played that particular fembot with the smoking jubblies well that was her they had the tubes running through the top and Mm. they Put the smoke through, so I'm like, Well, now I know that that one is that one, exactly. So it's kind of cool. I had an original uh, mummy uh costume of one of the um uh one of the magi from the one of the, the, the new mummy movies, the new mummies, yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't Ardith Bays, the one that Odette Fair wore, but it was one of the guys that he hung out with because mm-hmm. he had several of those guys, but it was all you know, the Turkish fabrics that had been distressed and dyed and everything. So mm-hmm. I had one of those. I sold that at an auction because I wasn't into it anymore. I had an Austin Powers uh, turquoise velvet suit. Oh, yeah, um, I remember that. That was yeah. awesome. Uh, sold that at auction because, you know, you get sick of stuff and you sell stuff to make room for other stuff. And sure. you get money from this and you got more money to buy this. And mm-hmm. I can't think of anything that I have now that I'd probably let go unless something really cool came my way. The only thing I'm really looking for now is a pair of Andy Kaufman's Latka coveralls. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I can't really think of anything that I'd let go, per se. A friend of mine wanted to look at maybe buying the pink Fembot outfit, but Mm -hmm. um, eh, I'll I'll probably still hold on to that because it is so specific to that particular scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's easy to identify. Yeah, exactly. Like if, you know, Kirk... Wore tons of tunics throughout the three years of Star Trek, mm-hmm. but the one from Amok Time where he gets sliced across yeah. the chest, mm-hmm. you know, if you buy a tunic that's sliced across the chest, there you can you go. probably go, ah, look at that. Mm-hmm. The Andy Kaufman Heartbeeps pants that I have, I have the pre bear attack, he gets attacked by a bear in it and gets all ripped up. I have the pre-Bear Attack jacket, but the post-Bear Attack pants, mm-hmm. and I have a still of him standing there with a hole in his knee and the wire sticking out, and the pattern of the rip yep. in the hole is exactly the pattern. I mean, it's to the letter. Yeah, yeah. And there's another shot I have of him close up with the light-up bow tie, mm-hmm. and it's the exact same bow tie. Because you can tell there's a little spot of glue on the <laughs> section of the bow tie where there's, right. there's polka dots on the bow tie. And then there's like a glue stain or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like that glue stain is that glue stain. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool to go from, you know, putting a towel around your neck to actually now you're looking at some of these original Hollywood-made costumes that were screen used.
0: So it's a long, it's a long road, but it's, it's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of fun. Now, what have you found uh, from owning and handling a number of these screen-used uh, costumes and props Versus what you thought they were like. What's been the biggest surprise you found? Uh, a lot of the Batman '66 stuff mm-hmm. was a lot cheesier.
1: If it's a feature film, chances are it's going to be a lot better made mm-hmm. because they have more time for preparation. Um, they have more money to throw into linings and and just kind of adorning the fabrics with certain things. Especially if it's a hero and not a stunt. Exactly. Yeah. But the Batman stuff that I've seen from the 66 show you're thinking oh this is cool it's like a plastic metal thing with a thing that slides open and this stuff, nah. it's a piece of it's a wood dowel mm-hmm. that's been painted yellow and badly <laughs> and just thrown onto this belt it's a block of wood right. that has been thrown onto this and you're like uh, thinking, how can this be? Right. Because it looks so cool on television, mm-hmm. and now I'm looking at it up close, and you can see the grain of the wood mm-hmm. underneath the paint. Yeah, yeah. But for camera, I guess it was okay. Oh, okay. totally. It would never pass muster for for high def nowadays. But uh, yeah, it's just like boy, these these are kind of cheesy actually. <laughs> but <laughs> whatever good for works. The day. Yeah. Yeah, the Star Trek props. You know, same thing. If you look at some of those. You can see the the marks in the wood of mm-hmm. where they actually chiseled it mm-hmm. to sculpt it. Right. It's just it's strange to me how well they just figured that nobody would ever see it, I guess. Sure. But, sure. but, but other stuff you see is just beautiful like oh my gosh, this is so beautifully done.
0: Like um, for example
1: Well, like the the Ray Fine jacket.
0: Oh um, from Strange Days. From yeah. strange
1: days. Just as individual pieces of leather. It's almost like a patchwork kind of quilt jacket with mm-hmm. these things and it's got some eel skin on the collar and but again that's a feature film so mm-hmm. they, they have you know more money to to do stuff like that and then some of the Elvis costumes that I saw when I was in in Graceland um, which was a life-changing experience oh, from of course from looking at cheesy black and white photos <laughs> as a kid and going to a drive-in movie watching Elvis on tour trying to figure out well how does that suit zip up and where does it go and how does it Collar stand up? How does it mm. stay up? Right. To now you're looking at these things two feet away at the detail and thinking oh my gosh, if I could have just seen this when I was a kid, yep. it would yep. have changed my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oh, I know how they got the lions on those belts now. Now I get it. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, the the Elvis stuff is amazing and uh, just a lot of the stuff that I've run across. Seeing the Chris Reeve costume and the in the Museum of Warner Brothers right. uh, was was amazing because who knew that the cape actually was on strings underneath his armpits, armpits yeah. underneath the tip. I mean, when I was making my Superman suit when I was 19, I had no idea that that's what they did. Sure, sure. I just figured, well, I'm going to Velcro it to the inside of the collar and kind of put it on the, so my seamstress at the time put a, a roll Underneath, so it would kind of have that roll to it. that mm-hmm. I don't know, it was very weird, but the design on that costume was uh, was amazing. Um, not to name drop, but this is a funny story. Um, Mark Hamill was over yesterday, and he was telling me the time that he met Christopher Reeve in London.
0: Mm-hmm. This is
1: probably in the 70s, when either he's working on Star Wars and they're doing another Superman movie. Sure, sure. But uh, he was in Chris's dressing room and saw the Superman suit there. Mm-hmm. And... he. He you know, being a lifetime comic book fan, Mark is just intrigued by this. And he said to Chris's wife, he said he said to Chris and his wife was there, and he said, How does it how does it feel to have that costume on? Mm-hmm. And Chris's wife spoke up and said, It feels wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it feels wonderful. He's like, I didn't want to know anymore. <laughs>
0: Wow, just imagining that Luke Skywalker and Superman in their prime in the 70s right. in the same room is yeah. blowing my mind. Yeah, it's magical. Oh, wow. It's pretty cool. Yeah. To be a fly on that wall. Sure. Oh. Yep. Um, I, I remember being very surprised by the, the fabric on that Jack Lord suit. It doesn't. It's not at all what you think it would be. Right, yeah. yeah.
1: It's like a stretch polyester something. Knit. knit. Yeah. yeah, stretchy. But he was fairly active in that show. He was in and out of helicopters, running around, jumping out of cars, rolling around behind boxes, coming up with his gun, you know, freeze, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he really had to have a lot of uh, movability in in his wardrobe, and it was made by a company called Contraneo Mm -hmm. in Hollywood here, and it has his name thing on the tag on the inside, but, yeah, you're thinking if you're just wearing, a, like, a regular suit to go to a wedding or church or whatever, you're not going to be going through the motions that no. Jack Lord is going to be going through no, no, as no. Uh, Steve McGarrett. Yeah. And it's got the big flare legs, yeah. which is really great from mm-hmm. the 70s. Um, and the thing that's really great about that suit, good and bad, uh, good because it was good for Jack, bad because it's bad for my mannequin, is um, Di Fabrizio had a certain secret technique for adding height to stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, without letting anybody know that he was adding height to stars. Mm-hmm. He would build, well, the lifts were on the outside of the shoe, to some extent, where they looked like maybe they were just a little higher-heeled. Right. But he would also build a lift in another inch, maybe inch and a half, on the inside of the uh-huh. shoe, uh-huh. and then he'd build the shoe over it so you wouldn't even know that the guy was lifted on the inside of the shoe. Uh-huh. So he's got another inch, inch and a half on the inside and an inch on the outside. You just added two to two and a half inches of height. To the star. Apparently, he did that with Shatner's boots all the time oh, okay. uh, on Star Trek because he made Shatner's. Uh, and of course, he made Jack Lord's. But I always thought Jack Lord was a, a tall guy anyway. Sure. But I guess he wanted to be taller than anybody else in the shot.
0: And with but, that uh, hair, though. With you the
1: hair, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, he was bigger than life. But uh, that's just, that's the surprising thing of, like you were talking about, is looking at these Hollywood made suits and not having any idea that. I didn't know Jack Lord had lifts in his boots. Who right. had any idea? I would have never known that. I never really would have thought about it. I just mm-hmm. thought he was this tall, thin guy who, you know, chased uh, woe fat, you know, around the, <laughs> around the islands of Hawaii. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's little things that they'll throw in all the time. Um, apparently, sometimes in suits that they make, if they know that it's for a particularly physical scene. Mm-hmm. they'll they'll put a little diamond Mm -hmm. underneath where the armpit goes just to give you a little extra room in the jacket to do some physical stuff. Sure, Sure. of course. Uh, Apparently Shatner in his Star Trek pants had three or four different pants one was for sitting one was Mm -hmm. for standing one was you know because you need a little extra room when you're sitting right and you need less room when you're standing and you didn't want a a baggy ass um, (laughs) when you're standing there but you need that room when you're sitting down because everything kind of spreads out like the different superman caves exactly right yeah yeah yeah. um so adam said he had different gloves hero gloves for different shots and scenes and you know sometimes made the gloves that had were close to the end of their life mm-hmm. would be for long shots while when he when you cut in for a close-up of him getting something out of the utility belt you bring out the really good gloves yeah, yeah. so it's it's all magic you know and that's what's really great about a lot of this stuff is just digging into it and yeah seeing how is this stuff made and why did they
0: do this and what is this for and what's that all about well, this is why I'm a big believer that even if one uh, uh, can't get out to, to collect this stuff or you can't afford it, definitely at least download or buy the auction catalogs. Yeah. Which are invaluable for uh, information great sure. and, and great photos under good light. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Well, the guys at Profiles in History, God bless them, have been really good about letting us come out uh, and look at stuff up close. Even if they know that we may not bid on it, mm-hmm. but just saying, yeah, come out and see it and photograph it and whatever, just for the for the pure science of of the research of keeping the history alive mm-hmm. um, and just artistic curiosity. But uh, it's you know some of the stuff I've seen over there has, has, has been great as well. Um, the Tony Clifton jackets that, like I said, they originally came out of the Lord West are very vivid mm-hmm. uh, and bright in color, even all these years later. I mean, yeah. the fabric stands up very well. Oh, completely. Uh, but when they printed it for Man on the Moon, because they Universal had just as hard a time as finding <laughs> yeah. this stuff as I did, uh-huh. what they did was they took the original Tony Clifton jacket from Bob Zemuda, they scanned it, mm-hmm. and they just screen-printed it onto cotton fabric, and it's a movie, it's 2D anyway, you're yeah, not yeah. going to need the three-dimensional weave of the fabric for a movie. Mm-hmm. So they figured, we'll just we'll just screen it onto some cotton fabric. But they didn't screen it on in a color that was quite as vivid as the original. Yeah, I saw it up close. Yeah. I remember. Mm-hmm. And I have one of Jim Carrey's uh, Tony Clifton tuxes. Mm-hmm. And to put that up against that, it's like that, but sun faded over yeah. 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think it was because they laundered it a lot. I think they did that on purpose. Because maybe that's too vibrant. Hmm. Maybe, maybe the original is too vibrant for film. Maybe. And they figured, we got to take this down, otherwise it's going to pull people's eyes out of their sockets. And we don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So it was still Clifton-esque enough for the movie without being so overt that Mm -hmm. it was distracting sure so it's it's very interesting the things that they decide to do for for film and television that you just wouldn't ever think the thing that I really like about original Hollywood television costumes versus stuff you see for cosplay Mm -hmm. is the detail yeah like the little stuff like the distressing Mm -hmm. like if you saw Heath Ledger's Joker costume up close at the Warner Museum You don't... You know, there's plenty of Heath Ledger Jokers that I saw at Comic-Con. Right. None of them had this. None of them had that last little detail. Because everywhere there would have been where with skin like around the collar mm-hmm. around the thing you know where the where the fabric would have worn that's mm-hmm. all been sanded to <laughs> look like it's distressed and old sure and sure. you just don't see it I mean people put their Joker things together they put it on it looks like brand new and they don't right. think well if the guy was the Joker and he was wearing this stuff a lot it mm-hmm. would be kind of worn down mm-hmm. so all the natural stress points of a piece of clothing the costumers you know sand it take some of the color out of it distress it and then they think they they like over dye it with like a yellow or, or something to make it to take it down in color so it does look aged mm-hmm, totally and aging and distressing of fabric is some of the most um fascinating. skillful fascinating talents in this business is how do you take a brand new piece of fabric right off of a bolt mm-hmm. and make it look like it's 20 years older than what it really is and that it's worn
0: in and that's that's really fabulous yeah, it's uh, it's all about creating the character, creating that story. If the character bought the shirt new great, the shirt should look new, but yeah. very often for an old west piece, sure, it's got to be worn to heck, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I completely know what you're talking about and that's that's really fascinating to see that cuz it it just it sells the story, it sells the character. And that's where we lose the signal for this week's episode so be back for part three of three of my chat with wally wingert where we'll be talking more about costume collecting and the art of getting into character so uh, if you need to find out more go to www.wallyontheweb.com or you can also check out costumestationzero.com if you have comments or suggestions thank you much this is bob mitch signing out